If you've got your scriptures with you this morning, you can turn to Revelation chapter 3. It's always good, I think, to open the book or open your your electronic device and read along with it. I know it'll also be up on the the screens, but Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. This is written to the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out, and I will write on him the name of my God And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. is turned on. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to see the room slowly filling back up. Uh, Just so you know, as this continues to happen, there is a strong likelihood that we will return to two services. They would likely be both in the morning uh, for the sake of our volunteers. These are not final decisions, but that just kind of lets you know uh, what we're thinking as the room continues to fill. Um, We are also looking to, uh, to create some very limited child care for the one to four-ish range. So you can be on a, on a lookout for that coming down the pike. And we are praying for all of you that are returning to school, whether you're students or teachers. Um, the next few weeks will be very interesting. So you have our prayers. As Kurt said, we're going to be in Revelation 3, and it's just, we're just going to be walking through it. So it would be really good if you keep it open, if you, whether it's on your, you know, your Bible or your device, um, we finished two weeks ago uh, walking through Daniel, um, and then of course we didn't meet last, last week because of that terrible hurricane that we had. Um, and next week, Lord willing, uh, we will begin a walk through Acts, but it's kind of become my custom in between series, I just preach on whatever I want to preach on. And so I, I just, I figured since we had become so familiar with apocalyptic literature. Well, let's take advantage of that and let's go to a different type of apocalyptic literature. And that's why we're in Revelation 3, um, listening to what Jesus has to say to the church in Philadelphia. So the original church of brotherly love. 
Uh, and, and I think it's really helpful to note this isn't just, this, this information isn't just to the church in Philadelphia because Jesus, you remember, he picked seven churches to address. He didn't pick six churches. He didn't pick eight churches. He very intentionally chose seven churches because the number seven is the, the, the number of completion. So what he's doing, in some way, each of these churches represent all the churches that would come behind them. And so the implication is that what he says to the church in Philadelphia has very specific implications to us at Orlando Grace Church today. So that's the way we should look at all of these churches but sticking with, with Philadelphia in God's providence, probably about five years after, uh, after this letter was written, persecution really began to ramp up. Um, it, it was you know, not uncommon if, if you were a professing Christian to be called into some sort of court, maybe stand in front of a, a Roman proconsul or an imperial governor where you were told often in public, you need to deny your worship of Christ and then in turn worship maybe one of the Roman gods or maybe the emperor themselves himself. And if, if you refused, you know, that generally didn't go well for you. And two weeks ago at the end of, of walking through Daniel, we, we looked at a guy named Polycarp, a second century uh, believer who was brought into this kind of, this kind of arena. Uh, he, did, he famously did not deny Christ. He had some harsh words for, uh, for the Roman proconsul, and then they burned him. And it's really interesting uh, to see the purpose of Revelation playing out in Polycarp's life and lots of other historical documents that we have in this, in this time frame. Because remember, the purpose of apocalyptic literature is to take you to some far distant future in a way that understanding that will, will help you to endure suffering in the here and now. That's the purpose, not to predict the future. The purpose is to endure suffering now. And so as Polycarp was being burned, People could hear him praying and he prayed, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of, my, of martyrs, I may share in the cup of Christ. So do you hear what he's doing? He's quoting Revelation. This is the purpose of Revelation playing out. He's, he says the cup of Christ, the company of martyrs. In, in preceding that, he talks about the lake of fire, my king and my savior. He's quoting Revelation as are many of the martyrs that are going down, or in some ways being lifted up, all over the empire. And the Greeks, they had a word for this. The word they used when they saw this was hypomone. So mone means stay, and hypo is like hyper. So it literally means hyper-staying. They, they were being lit on fire, and they were hyper-staying. And this is where we get our English word endurance, from hypostay. And if you look at this you can see there are no there are no critiques for the church in Philadelphia there are no rebukes for the church in Philadelphia it's just an encouragement to endure because Jesus in his sovereignty and grace he knows what's coming down the pike for this church the suffering that's going to begin to increase and he's wanting to prepare them for that day so we then get to ask ourselves what can we learn from what Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia about endurance, about hyper-staying? We're going to need endurance just from living in a fallen world, but Jesus is taking it up just a step and saying, you're going to need endurance if you're going to follow Christ. You are going to have heartbreaks and stresses and disappointments and have to make hard decisions that our unbelieving friends don't have to make. And Jesus is preparing them and us for that day. So I want to look at this passage and I, uh, I want 
I think this passage very naturally answers three questions about endurance. Why we need endurance, how we get endurance, and then what endurance produces. And before I go in, I want to give a lot of credit to Tim Keller because his teaching on this Greek word has highly influenced the way that I look at it and what I say. So he should get that credit. Why we need endurance. We need endurance according to verses 8 and 10 because we have little power and trials are coming. We have little power and trials are coming. I'm going to read those two verses. I know your works. I know that you have little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world. So the church in Philadelphia, they had little power. They, uh, they were a small church. They were experiencing, as we said, increased persecution from the Romans. They were actually also uh, experiencing increased persecution from the Jews. And so we see they're small, they're powerless. And if you're paying attention, there's been a lot of debate over these verses because it can sound like what Jesus is saying is, I am going to, uh, I'm going to protect you from these trials. Like I'm going to, I'm going to evacuate you from these trials. If you have enough faith, I'll deliver you immediately from these trials. But that Greek word that we translate as from can also be translated as through. And I think that's the more natural understanding of what's going here. I'm going to keep you through these trials. And that fits the context a lot better because the context is about endurance. Why would we need endurance if Jesus is just going to magically make us happy, healthy, and wealthy if we have enough faith? And, and then on top of that, you have all these teachings in the New Testament that tell us trials are going to come. John uh, sixteen thirty three, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may, may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul says some very similar things. We are destined to suffer in the short term because of our decision to follow Jesus. Jesus suffered, so why would we think that we would get any more than he did on, on this earth? And when we realize that we have little power and that trials are going to come on our life no matter what, we then have to really wrestle with the reality that we really don't control much of anything. We really don't control much of anything about our lives. And that's a hard thing to, to accept if you really think about it until you experience these kinds of trials. My, uh, my former church, we used to joke when, when I went there, uh, we estimated the average age of that church to be about 13 and a half. And then over the course of my time there, we, we aged up to maybe about 21. And so I, I, I applied that same math to Orlando Grace Church and I came up, if you include our kids, the average age of our church is probably somewhere around 33. It's a good age. Jesus was 33. 33 is probably a good age. But the reality of an average age of 33 in the context that we're in is that we are, I would say, still young enough and healthy enough and successful enough uh, to think that we have some control over our lives, to think that we can get around certain trials that none of us are going to be able to get around. But the truth is, we have almost no control, (laughs) I mean, you didn't choose your gender, you didn't choose your intelligence, you didn't choose your race, you didn't choose your chromosomes, you didn't choose your parents and the health of the home you grew up in, you didn't choose the year you would graduate college and the economy you would step into, you didn't choose if you would have comorbidities in a pandemic, you didn't choose your giftings or your talents, whether they came to you by nurture or nature, they were given to you, you didn't choose them, 
And until we realize this, we, ha- we can think that we have control over certain things that allow us to think we're going to avoid these types of trials that Jesus is talking about, and that when good things happen, that we can be tempted to take credit for those things and think that because we were all given all these good things and dropped into a good scenario, that we can pat ourselves on the back for seeing good come about. But the truth is, a thousand things could have gone differently in your life, and none of the successes that we have experienced, we, we would be experiencing. And if you don't know, and it, really embrace that you will have trials and you have no ultimate control over those trials, you're not going to see your need for the endurance that Jesus is talking about. So we have to see that need first. Uh, I mean, if you... If you want to be a sprinter, you need to be tested and understand what you need to be a good sprinter. If you want to be a a weightlifter, you need to be tested and understand what you need to do to be able to be a good weightlifter. In the same way, we're not going to really desire or understand endurance until we have some of these tests in our lives. Uh, A few years ago, Angela and I were watching American Ninja Warrior. (laughs) and uh, it was was, I was a few years younger I was in better shape and I'm prone to optimism in general I just it comes I come by it very naturally and I just blurted out I think I'd be good at this (laughs) and Angela just started laughing she was like you literally have not done one thing on this obstacle course not one of them have you ever tried before and you hear what she was saying she you haven't been tested so you can't know if you would be good at this It's only when we're tested that we begin to really see the need for endurance and and what Jesus is offering here. Tim Keller in his trade, if you've heard him, his trademark calm pastoral tone, he said this, if you're a person who hasn't suffered, if your parents were wealthy and powerful enough to keep you from ever having to go at it on your own, if you somehow had a life laid out so there is a lot of comfort, and you really have not had to take reality on the chin, I can guarantee you something. You're shallow. You don't know it, but everyone else knows it. You're superficial, and everyone can see it. I think only Tim Keller could have said that. (laughs) But what he's saying is ringing true. We're not going to desire endurance. We're not going to know who we are. We're not going to know what comes out of those trials until we have been tested and experience that testing, and then really lean into the endurance that we're being offered. And it's really only when we experience trials in our life that, that the priorities upon which we built this life begin to kind of be replaced. I mean, it's, it's sometimes only when your health is failing that we tend to not care that much about what kind of car we drive. You know, when you see your children in deep pain and anguish, you begin to not care as much about the sports you were following or the recreational hobbies that had consumed you for so many years. There's something about trials and testing that reorient our ultimate priorities. And so the question I think here for us is, do we see our need for endurance? We can't hear anything else in this passage until we can say, yes, I see my need for endurance. And if we do see our need, if the answer is yes, then there's really good news in this passage for us. That, and which brings me to my second point. Because there is someone who is in control of everything that's transpiring around us. And he is good and he does love us. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Seven and eight show us 
that we get endurance through a key and a door. All right. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, one of the reasons that Revelation is so hard to understand is because of how much Old Testament Jesus and John are using. And it's actually more Old Testament in Revelation than any other book in the New Testament. But that's, the sheer volume of Old Testament isn't, um, isn't the hardest thing. The hardest thing is that they're not citing it. You know, they don't say, well, in Isaiah chapter 2, this. Jesus and John are assuming we understand what's going on. They're assuming, in this case, that we know Isaiah chapter 22. Because in Isaiah chapter 22, we read, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So what is Isaiah talking about? Because we have to understand that because before we can understand what Jesus is talking about. And in Isaiah 22, he's talking about Eliakim, who was the head of the house of David, maybe like the prime minister or the, um, the, the chief steward of David's house. And one of the many privileges that you would have if you were in charge of David's house is you would have a key. And this key would open the front door. You, could ha- you had a key to the kitchen. You had a key to the bedrooms. And most of all, you had a key to the throne room. And so what Jesus is saying is he has that key. And Jesus is going to open up a door that we could never open up on our own. And because he opened it, it will never be shut. That's what Jesus is saying here. And it's the key to the whole passage. (laughs) This door and this key, this is the key to our endurance. So I wanna look at this door and I wanna look at it from two different angles. I wanna look at how this door is opened by Jesus. And I wanna look at what's on the other side of that door for all of us who follow Jesus. So first, how is the door opened? Well, all right, remember again, why do we need endurance? Because we have little power and trials are going to come. Another way of saying this is we need endurance because we're going to have closed doors. When we experience suffering, that's a form of a closed door. When we, uh, when we experience persecution, that is a form of a closed door. When we desire things that we don't get, that is a form of a closed door. And every other theistic religion, they have a God who who is in power or in control in some way, but only in Christianity do we have a God who took on flesh. Only in Christianity do we have a God who became human. And this is really important because only we have a God who understands what it's like to have a closed door, what it's like to be locked on the other side of that door. This is what Jesus did. Jesus came to this earth to endure a closed door so that it would be open to us. Jesus came to live the perfect life, but then he he knew what he was going to on the cross. You know, I've often asked, like, why do people like Polycarp, you know, go to their death so magnificently and Jesus is sweating blood? He's so nervous. Was was Polycarp and all these martyrs, were were they somehow better than Jesus? And the answer is, of course, no. None of them had to face what Jesus was going to face on the cross. Jesus went to the cross, and he not only had to endure excruciating embarrassment and physical pain, he received the full wrath of God on that cross, after which his heart stopped beating. That's the closed door that all of us deserve and he took it for us to open up a door that none of us could ever merit. 
That's what makes Christianity different than every other religion that has ever or will ever exist. Because of that, God gets us. And understanding amidst all of our closed doors that this one is permanently open. It should reorient all the ways that we look at the closed doors around us. That's how the doors opened. Now, second, Jesus lets us see what's beyond that door. Uh, I've, I know I've said this before, but Angel and I like sci-fi movies, and I'm convinced there's basically one theme to every sci-fi movie at this point. You have an ordinary person in an ordinary life. They're shown something extraordinary, whether they're like brought to the future, to another dimension, or whatever. They see something extraordinary, and when they're put back in their ordinary life, they can't live in an ordinary way anymore. That's what Jesus is doing here. He wants us to see something extraordinary on the other side of that door so that now, here in the now, when we're suffering, when things are hard, we will not live out that suffering in what we would consider to be an ordinary way. So, what is it that we see beyond the door? Verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. Then I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and then thirdly, my own name. So what is Jesus letting us see? He lets us see first that we will be pillars in the temple of God and all the commentators, they agree that Jesus is doing something uniquely Philadelphian here because Philadelphia was prone to earthquakes and about 50 years before this, uh, they the city had almost been flattened by an earthquake. And so residents had, you know, very reasonably begun to decide to live outside of the city limits because I've never experienced an earthquake. I've actually, I I want to, just a little one. As I travel to like California, I'm like, just a little earthquake. I would like to feel that, but not a big one, not a Philadelphian earthquake. And so he's communicating something to them. And if you think about an earthquake in those times, the most dangerous place that you could possibly be would be one of the temples. These massive pillars and statues and huge buttresses or whatever. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to bring you into a temple that will not shake, it will not fall, and you're actually going to be the pillars. So we won't have marble pillars and dead statues. We will have living pillars and you will be one of them. I mean, I'm, I would just be happy to be a tile on the floor and we get to be pillars on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And then we see that we're gonna have three things written on us. So this may affect your theology of tattoos. I don't know. But the three things that we have written on us are the name of God, the name of the new city, the new Jerusalem, and then we have Jesus' new name. And this goes way beyond a tattoo. And I kind of want to illustrate it like this. Uh, I have four children. When they were younger, particularly, we would have to lock doors and cabinets because they they can't go just anywhere. And the nature of at least my children, I don't know if you or when you were little, when my kids would get to a locked anything, the first thought they would have is there must be something wonderful behind this door. And they wanted to get in that door and they would fuss and be upset that that door was closed and locked to them. And when we face these closed doors, we have the same propensity to think we know right, to fuss, to 
not trust that there is a loving father who in this closed door is loving us and maybe even protecting us. But what we see in this passage is we are gonna have names written on us that will not just stay on the skin. Somehow they will sink into the core of who we are and we will never again doubt. We will never again doubt God's goodness, his love, his protection for us. And not that I think we will have any real closed doors in heaven or in the new heavens and new earth. If there were, they wouldn't bother us at all. And Jesus wants us to be comforted by that knowledge of what will happen so that we can endure now. That's the key to endurance. That's how we get it. But biblical endurance, it doesn't stop there. It actually produces something as well. And that's the last part of, of this chapter. And for what it's worth, this will be my shortest point as well. When we, uh, when we embrace biblical endurance, it produces purposeful suffering. And there are three marks in this passage of purposeful suffering, things that endurance is producing. And, and the first, we see that it makes us more human. So suffering can make us less human or it can make us more human. It can drive us mad or it can build us up. And we, we know this, probably the most famous place we see this is Romans chapter 8, verse 28, 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all types of sufferings, all pressures work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be what? Conformed into the image of God. So as we're suffering, God's using it to conform us more into the image of Jesus. And in so doing, we're actually becoming more human, more of how God has designed us to be. Second, purposeful suffering, it draws people in. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come down and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. All right, bowing down doesn't always mean worshiping. He's not saying that they're gonna come and worship you. Bowing can simply mean humbling themselves. And again, he's playing off of a reference in Isaiah where there's a prophecy that Isaiah, one day, this believing remnant of Jews, the Gentiles, they will come and they will bow down before you, which is a way of saying your God is my God, which would have had to be just unimaginable, I would, I would think, to, to the Jews in that time. But it happened I mean, basically, pretty much all of us are those Gentiles who have come to the believing remnant of Jews and said, your God is my God. And so what Jesus is doing, he's flipping it in a way, and he's saying, one day those who persecute you will do the same thing. They will come to you and say, your God is my God. Whole books have been written on the way this has played out over the course of church history. As the people of God had suffered the way that we're supposed to, the way that the Philadelphians did, the way that Polycarp did, people are drawn into the faith. They can't stay the same seeing people commit their lives no matter what to Jesus Christ. So the second, the second thing that purposeful suffering produces is that it brings people into the kingdom of God. And then thirdly, purposeful suffering brings us the crown of life. Look at verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So what is this crown? It isn't something that we merit by our endurance. It is something that we get as a prize at the end of the path. And remember how we we talked about Jesus trading places with us. He experienced the closed door that we could have an open door. And part of that open door is not only that we're not experiencing 
all the wrath of God that we deserve, we get all the things that Jesus rightfully earned. And I can't begin to even guess what all that is that Jesus earned with his perfect life and sacrifice here on this earth. But whatever it is, that's the crown and it's ours. Not because we deserve it, but because he gives it to us, because he loves us. And Jesus wants us to see all that's on the other side of that door so that we can endure anything that comes our way on this side of the door. So we as humanity, I think we can approach suffering in three main ways. We can, we can try to avoid it, you know, think of it as a natural, maybe we can build on technology so that we just don't have to suffer. I think that, that classifies most of 21st century Western culture but that is ultimately going to lead all of us to despair because we will all suffer at some point. Uh, we can have, I think, maybe a fatalistic view of things and just feel like, well, suffering's here. There's nothing I can do, do about it. I'm just gonna throw up my hands. Or we can approach suffering as a Christian with a biblical perspective of endurance and be hopeful. Mike's gonna lead us through communion in just a minute. But that's the way I'm going to use our time, I think, is to think about what it looks like to have more biblical endurance, to dwell in my mind in what is on the other side of that door and what Jesus did to open that, to eternally open that door for us. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful to be able to come together, however it works for us right now, some here some scattered. I pray uh, as we begin to celebrate the Lord's Supper that you would bless those gathered here, that these elements, these natural, ordinary elements would be used supernaturally. And I do pray for everybody on the other side of these cameras, whether live or recorded, I pray that you would, for those who really cannot be with us, that you and your grace, you understand it, you get it, and you would minister to all of them. Those who probably need a message of endurance, maybe even more than those of us who are in this room. So we lift them up. Uh, We long to be back together, to see each other face to face, to hug each other. We thank you that that day will come. And we ask for Holy Spirit-powered endurance between now and the day we walk through that door. And we thank you that that door is open eternally for us who follow Jesus because of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.